This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. This is your host, Michelle Parker. This episode marks the last of the first season, and I am currently packing up and heading north for an expedition to Alaska. There will be a short break before we release season two in May, and until then, wish me stable pow and blue skies. On today's episode, I interviewed a childhood friend, avid skier, mother, walker, food grower, and author, Amy Hammer. Amy recently released her latest book titled Cycles, The Science of Periods, Why They Matter, and How to Nourish Each Phase. I've personally been looking forward to having this conversation as I feel strongly that this information is empowering no matter your gender. Understanding my body has allowed me to give myself more grace at times and has certainly helped me as an athlete. Amy is incredibly knowledgeable and it was a true pleasure to dive deep with her and learn. Additionally, I'd like to thank Arcteryx for supporting the show. Arcteryx headquarters are located in the world's largest temperate rainforest in Vancouver, BC. The gear is tested in the harshest environments and designed to withstand the elements. With product that is built to last, I like to think of Arcteryx as an investment that will outlive other apparel. You're purchasing something that will stand the test of time and live for many adventures, mountaintops, trips to the crag, and days on the hill. It's designed team are perfectionist fanatics gear heads outdoor lovers but designers first pretty much every single employee that i've ever met at arcteryx appreciates the outdoors and participates in the activities they are designing for they are forward thinkers making what i consider to be the very best gear out there they literally invented the waterproof zipper hot tips take care of your gear if your jacket and pants are dirty look up how to wash them and do that before you are out in the mountains this year your outerwear is far more functional when it's clean. When it's dirty, it's less waterproof, and we want your gear to last for more than just one season, lessening the environmental impact. Amy Hammer grew up in Lake Tahoe, surrounded by mountains and big blue lakes. We played competitive soccer together and against each other and raced down mountains as children. Amy went on to garner a few creative and medical degrees, a BA in journalism, BS in environmental studies and nursing, and an MS in nurse practitioner, as well as spending years teaching movement with yoga, fitness, and all different types of skiing. She has dedicated decades to sustainable food and environmentalism before becoming the author of two books, actually three, I'll correct myself, <laughs> including the cookbook. She writes entertaining, science-based, and actionable books that empower you to take the best possible care of your reproductive and overall health. Her first book published in 2021 is titled How to Grow a Baby, and her second book published this year is titled Cycles, and dives into the menstrual cycle and cycle across the lifespan. On a personal note, as an athlete, I started to research the menstrual cycle and how it might affect my mental and physical state pertaining to skiing professionally. What I discovered changed the way that I treat myself and empowered me with knowledge. I've been highly anticipating this conversation with Amy as I truly feel like this information isn't well known and the knowing helps us all to be better to ourselves and more understanding of where we're at. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. It's so great to be here and talk to you, Michelle. Yes, it's really nice to reconnect with you because we have quite the past together growing up as youth playing soccer and skiing. Can you talk about your youth here in Tahoe? Yeah, so I grew up ski racing in Lake Tahoe and Michelle and I, I have distinct memories of us free skiing together and taking our skis off in Mammoth and throwing them down the hills and bobsledding on the moguls. <laughs> so I have a lot of memories of, of us 
playing on the mountains, less uh, racing. But I, I got pretty into racing. Um, it kind of was my 100% focus as a kid and then all the way through Division One skiing through college. Um, and then I still, uh, love to backcountry ski and ski a lot now. So it's a pretty, it's a, it's a, it's shaped my life. It, it shapes the work I do. There's, it's inescapable as part of who I am and how I think about the world. And, um, you have my focus and drive and determination and how I move my body, my connection to my environment, how I think about how I move in relation to nature. Um, it's really shaped everything I do. And I think writing books actually brought that back around is even when I write something that doesn't have any distinct relationship to me as an athlete it still informs how I think about the world and how we move through it yeah I love that I think a lot of those same principles like I find so much on the skin track and most of what you do these days is it backcountry skiing or mostly backcountry I have pretty low tolerance for um, crowds yes (laughs) fair and I'm a walker like I I just need tons of movement to be okay so whether I'm walking on skis or walking uh, in the trails down in Reno where I live, uh, that's where I find ideas and I work through solutions without movement. I really, I really can't think that's Mm. where I find my, my path really in writing and in, and in life. And the last few years for me, I've, I've had three babies in the last five years. So I do a lot of walking. Um, so the big ski adventures will come back. I'm very calm and confident about that, but uh, yeah, that's definitely in the backcountry kind of being in that, that quiet, um, connected space is, is where I find redemption pretty often. Yeah. I love that. And I love reconnecting with you now. Um, I've followed your journey for the last number of years and it's been so incredible to watch you grow and, and write books and produce stuff that is applicable and that we can learn from. I've had numerous friends kind of comment on different books that you've come out with and like, oh, How to Grow a Baby, that was like my most important book at this time of my life. And I'm like, I know her, that's my friend Amy. And it's so, it's just really special to be here with you. Well, and I love too that like we've, we're reconnecting now and our journeys have been pretty, our interests have been really similar over time with food and environmentalism and just really this consideration and intentionality about how you're living. And I think we both express that through our work or use or really think about how our messages come across to people to get across what we really care about, which is this preservation of what we love. And and you can't help but connect information about your body and how you treat yourself and others. Um, that just has to be part of the message. And I think it's really cool that you have an interest in this and you're bringing it to a population that um, for the most, you know, with skiing, you really try to fit into something that's really in- intense and it's kind of been shaped by really men. And so I think what you've done is bring it to everyone by being so talented, but then you've opened up this space for people to also show interest in other things you really care about. And so like, that can be cool too. You Mm. can like launch off cliffs and you care about sustainable food. Yeah. So I think those, to me, those are so connected and I see so many more athletes bringing that awareness. And I, I love that because it just shows like no one is one thing. You're not just one identity. You're not just a skier. You're not just a mom. Like there's a, people are these mixed nuanced creatures. And I love that about writing is that you get this chance to really explore all of these complexities and connections and nuances and nothing is black and white and things are complicated. and, And that's what makes it so interesting to me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure that our upbringing through skiing is paralleled in so many different ways and you kind of touched on that how the sport is the majority are men of participants and i think the industry itself is 
relatively controlled by men to a certain degree. I think that's changing. But can you talk a little bit about like being a female and growing up in that state and how that shaped you now? We talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but the the way I'll bring it to menstrual cycles right away is when I was growing up, I was one of the only girls, which I'm pretty sure you were too. And my cycle was something that was absolutely hidden. I never talked about it. Uh, it was super embarrassing if anyone was to know about it. And I think you're just trying to fit into this culture and be one of the boys. And now that I'm in my mid thirties, I'm just looking back going, oh man, why did I feel that way? Why didn't I feel empowered? Why was I doing that? And I think that you can't help it when you're younger. You're, you're really caring about what your community says about you. And then you just get to this point where it's so empowering to learn and not feel any shame. And I think that's where a lot of us are now um, in our late 20s or in our 30s or 40s is just coming back around to your body and noticing noticing it and paying attention to it and remaking the world, not trying to fit into like a men or patriarchal situation with skiing, especially it's like, well, let's talk about this stuff. Yeah. Everyone is going through this and whether or not you even choose to have a menstrual cycle as a woman, um, it's still important to know how it works Yeah, without this humans wouldn't exist. It seems pretty important to me, not just that females know about this, but all people, uh, cause it's just essential. Uh, you know, I read this beautiful quote from a research paper that was, you know, this thing that we complain about, uh, this is paraphrasing, but this thing we complain about and really reduce down to the bleeding phase is actually a physiological fun- function that's essential for life. And we, the, the way we have to, the way we just reduce these things that are biologically normal to shame and embarrassment, I think that's such a disservice to our bodies. Yeah. Um, so for a lot of for me is like looking back, reflecting on my experience and then writing from that experience and being like, you know, I, I relate to everyone who's felt shame, who hasn't taken time to learn about this. And now we still have a chance to do it and pass pass that on. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, this science hasn't been typically like the female body hasn't been studying when it what hasn't been studied when it comes to sports nutrition or like how you go to the gym and work out like we've been missed out on in that like we've kind of been and can you touch on that I'm like not speaking correctly there's so well this part is like I mean it's there's so much of this that I wrote about because I kind of started um there there is research but then even the research I go into in the book you okay so one one thing that's really important is um historically we've tried to link cognitive function to menstrual cycles so basically they're saying a lot of the research will say like you know across your menstrual cycle as a female your cognitive function will change for example when your estrogen and progesterone are low you'll have it kind of equates your skills to being more masculine like you'll be better at these things when they're high um you'll be worse at some things and so these studies will look at one menstrual cycle and do a measure and there's this amazing paper i referenced in the book what they did that was so unique about their research paper was they tracked two menstrual cycles so not just one they looked across two and they said all of these cognitive findings are irrelevant across two cycles so all the things that we've looked at for one menstrual cycle that we can say X causes, or you know, this causes this, the causality goes away if you look across two menstrual cycles. And there's, they basically say like, we just have so much ingrained misconceptions that we kind of accept these biases about our own bodies or 
functions or our abilities, the way we think. And this paper was so nice because it just said, you know, this is individual. There's individual variation here. Um, and going on, touching back to how we thought about it historically, uh, one of the guys I write about in the book, he's this very well-known Harvard physician. And he has, uh, he was very respected, a researcher, but he wrote a very biased, uh, very well-accepted book about how when, when, uh, when women menstruate, the their basically their um, executive functioning brain power is diverted from their uh, from their brain to their ovaries or vice versa. Mm, so he's mm-hmm. so so his thing was like you know not only does women when women are seeking higher education it makes them both irritable and infertile. So wow. so Edward Clark yeah great guy. Um, so one of my favorite stories though is a couple years later. Um, a woman came in with her own extremely well-researched uh, paper where she did all of these exercises and data tracking across many cycles. And she just completely proved him wrong. She was also uh, at Harvard and she, she proved him wrong and got an award for her paper. Uh, Jaco- her, name's, um, Jaco- her last name's Jacoby. And what I love about that story is she's like, okay, you want to make up some biased stuff. Let me do some really good you know, give you some really good data that everything you're saying about this diversion energy thing you made up about the menstrual cycle is wrong. And she's like, basically, it turns out when women are empowered, supported, and educated, that's when they're healthiest, not when you take away their rights to be educated or in the job force. Mm. So there's all these kind of like combative stories in the literature. Um, And a lot of those biases are still held. There's a lot of stigma still. But God, the research on menstrual cycles, even today, it's just it's really hard to study. Um, And there's a lot of bad studies that are repeated in the culture. Right. So writing this book was a lot of debunking, going back in, looking at the papers, looking at what's been done since, looking at meta-analysis, and just kind of relearning even what I thought was true was just wrong. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It is so fascinating. Um, I think it was first brought to light for me in my late 20s, probably. And my therapist sent me a book. Um, It was called Roar, Women Are Just Small Men. And when I dove into it, it was like a light bulb came on. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know more. And why have I not ever been exposed to this information? That was like a huge question of mine. And I started digging in and... Part of what she says is that like the women's body and the cycle has so many variables that when men looked, or when scientists for that matter, looked at the human anatomy, they were like, well, we'll study men because there's less variables. And so there hasn't been that much research in comparison to men based on women. But all of this information is so applicable to what we do within skiing. And it's really been incredibly empowering for me to apply that to my daily living and and going out and filming and performing as an athlete. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about what you're saying too is you had to learn that it's an individual experience. So the problem with menstrual cycle research now, beyond it being complicated, is the way you actually perform the research uh, is really important. So for example, a lot of research will be like, we're gonna do a menstrual cycle study and we're gonna use a 28-day calendar method. Now, that assumes that your menstrual cycle is not only 28 days, that you also ovulate on day 14. And the problem with that is that most people don't adhere to that rule. Um, one of my other favorite things about the, say about the menstrual cycle is it's, it is much more likely to adhere to individual variation than any um, medicalized averages. So there's a stat in the book, I can't recall immediately, but it's um, 
you know, the people will usually ovulate. Bef- it's the it's very rare to be exactly on day 14. Right. A lot of people will be earlier or later. Um, the average cycle is actually 29 days plus or minus 5.2 days. So there's just this, the, and the follicular phase is usually around more around 16 days than 14 days. So in these studies, if you're not measuring LH, so some hormones, and, and tracking specific ovulation dates for every single person in that study, which is extremely expensive and hard to do, you're getting information based on what happens during ovulation when maybe most of the people in the study aren't ovulating. So then if you're saying this happens during the luteal phase, this happens during the follicular phase, this happens during the cycle, you know, the bleeding phase, you're getting misinformation because you can't, it's really hard to measure every single person's estrogen, progesterone, um, their LH when they're, you know, that's spiking, when they're ovulating, you're not taking their basal body temperature, you're not checking their cervical mucus. And in the face of that, the only option I see being really reasonable is learning your own cycle and learning how you track your own information and your body's not going to perform like other people's. Right. So I think like you said with skiing, like when you started paying attention to your body and, and learning that information that for some reason we really don't learn ever until you really take it upon yourself. Um, you're just, you don't really have empowerment from information unless you can take it and apply it to your own body, which is what I'm so interested in. Like, how do you pay attention to your own body and how does that cultivate taking care of yourself and not, but also understanding and being empath- having empathy for other people? Do you have a specific way to track your cycle that you would recommend? Uh, if people are interested in doing it, and there's a lot of caveats to this, because I'm not saying every single person should do fertility awareness-based methods. For some people, birth control works well um, for medical reasons or for personal reasons. I'm not anti-birth control pills. But if you choose not to take them and you're in, uh, you know, not having risky sexual encounters, which, in which case condoms should always be used. <laughs> um, so, you know, all, all these caveats said, if you want to track your cycle, um, regardless of whether you're having sex to reproduce or not, I think is important first. And fertility awareness, awareness-based methods are going to give you the most aware, um, accurate information. So what that means is, you know, these, these signs like your basal body temperature, which will uh, increase after you ovulate, and then your um, cervical mucus, which will change in consistency throughout your cycles. So over the month when you're fertile, it'll be more sticky, or we call it egg white sometime. That's probably, that's my number one favorite because it's for my body extremely accurate right. to know where I'm at in my cycle. Um, and then you can do things like cervical positioning, which is a little more advanced. And um, I think what's really important to talk about when we talk about fertility awareness-based methods is your... You're, you're in a relationship with your body that's uncomfortable for some people to talk about. You're paying attention to your cervical mucus, which people are like, ew, I have discharge. That discharge is giving you information. It You should have discharge. You have cells in your vagina. That's their job. They're keeping everything healthy. So there, there's just this like absolute acceptance piece first before you can touch and feel and pay attention to your body, which that attention where it's going to me is like the number one first thing if you want to learn about your cycle. Because if your attention is this is embarrassing or gross, that's going to shape your experience to your body. If your attention is, I'm curious about what this means and paying attention to what this means. Your attention, it shapes your experience in the world. So I think that's always where I start. It's like, well, what, what do, how do your breasts feel? How does that change? What's your mood feel like? Um, just, just these little things that aren't the same for every person, learning how they feel in your body across your cycle 
in addition to these distinct fertility awareness based methods, I think those, all those together, they give you so much information about, um, like what you said, performance or how, how you live or what feels right or wrong or, um, that's where I would, st- what I recommend if people want to. And I go through it in the, in detail in the book. Yeah. And I really don't like to say you should only pay attention to this for reproductive purposes. It's, it's like paying attention to your blood pressure. Yeah. You know, like it's the same information. It tells you how your body's responding to stress. It gives you information over time. I have some, um, calendar, you know, cal- tracking, uh, books and everything else I can recommend to you at the end mm-hmm. to, that you can write stuff down and, and see your rhythms and see your time. There's also a uh, wearable technology that tracks your basal body temperature, which can be really accurate, which I like because it's hard to take your temperature every day. Yeah. But th- those kind of signs I think are really cool to learn. I think that's so fascinating how your response was so much more intimate than, oh, you can get an app and track your cycle because it might not be perfectly applicable to you. And that's, and I think I started by way of getting an app and tracking it. And then now I don't use the app anymore and I'm much more in tune with exactly what you're talking about. And a lot of that for me is like emotional um, energy levels and understanding kind of the mental phase of where I'm at. And I think that's allowed me to give grace when I'm not as confident or when I'm feeling really ready to go and I'm fired up and every all the stars are aligning. But yeah, for me, it's like, there's a certain time of the month when I'm ready to send. And there's a certain time of the month where I need a little bit of extra sleep and then and, and will not perform at my uh, best when it comes to having courage and standing on top of a mountain and dropping into a line. When do you notice that, that, that kind of feeling of boldness and wanting to send goes like lowers? Yeah. I think right before I start my period, I have a serious dip in confidence. Yeah. And, um, and usually it's the like two days leading up to it. I start to notice it and I'm like, okay, I know I'm going to start my period soon. And I can tell that I just have a lot less confidence when I'm standing on top of a line. I mean, and I kind of spoke to you before we started chatting. There was the other day, mid line, I stopped before my air and I was with a dear friend of mine, Lucy Sockbauer. And, um, and we had spoken quite openly about our cycles being on pretty similar schedules and I stopped and I had to like basically get myself out of the situation, not hit the cliff. And I was kind of embarrassed at first when I'm standing there and you're filming with two guys. And then I came down and I very openly said, hey, I'm like about to start my period and I don't feel super confident. And I apologized, which I, in retrospect, wish I didn't apologize because this is like a super normal part of being human. But it was um, really felt good to speak openly with my colleagues out there that were a couple of men and for them to be actually so accepting and thankful of that openness. Yeah. I just love that you're talking about something that was a light bulb moment for me was that experience, what you're talking about during the luteal phase, which precedes your bleeding phase. And this is why research is cool because I actually found that you have a heightened sense of fear during that luteal phase. Um, Progesterone rises. Uh, you can experience kind of more emotional vulnerability, but also a reduction in impulsiveness. Um, Mm. This is just interesting. People who uh, are addicted to drugs actually have lower blood pressure and reduced anxiety and drug cravings. So you actually have like just much lower impulsiveness and this kind of higher controlling of that impulsivity. Um, And it's this really interesting time where you're also more vulnerable to fear, and I, I just said that, but the reason we think is because 
so so your body, you know, the point of the menstrual cycle is you might get pregnant when you ovulate. That's what your body is always kind of preparing for. And it, and it's doing that in a way that's letting your body be really in control of, of the environment. But so the idea is that during your luteal phase, so after you ovulate, your body, you'll actually be more, You I wrote about this in both books, but you'll be more disgusted by things that are gross. You are more careful by situations, what you're talking about, because you're in kind of a more protective, um, you're, you're more protective of your body, not only against dangerous situations, but also path pathogens. So you can be a little less social because if you're around more people, you're actually exposed to more pathogens. So it's kind of this behavioral immunity, your, your behavior adjusts to protect yourself. So it's not, I think there's so, I can look back and think of all this time where I blamed myself for feeling something without recognizing that it, you know, it's, it's the function of the body to protect you during these times. And then during ovulation or before that you get this buildup of energy and anything feels possible. And I, I think like that wave can feel really scary or we're taught, you know, you should always feel the same. There should be um, stability across it. You shouldn't be at the whim of your menstrual cycle. But to me, there, there's a stability and and knowing what to expect and knowing when my body's going to feel a certain way. And then there's also an adaptability and like a gentleness and this curious openness that I think is so important for how, how you kind of live in the world. Um, to not just expect you to always be the same person every single day allows you to know that other people aren't going to be the same person every day. Uh, so I think like knowing when you're going to feel more vulnerable or not mood or emotional, whatever, whatever that is to, to me, what's real, what I've thought about a lot is when you go skiing, there's some factors you take into account, which is the snow, the snowpack, the season, your company, what you're wearing. There's all these external environmental factors that shape your performance. And the menstrual cycle is the internal environment that you bring on the mountain with you too. It's how it, it shapes your experience of your body. It's just as important as your company of how confident you feel. And it's just as important to pay attention to and respond to. Totally. It's so, yeah, that was beautifully said. Thank you for yeah blessing us with all of that knowledge. Um, I think that it's been going back to what you said about like being ashamed about it. And, and it's really been in the last five years for me where like on the skin track, I'll bring it up and talk about it with my male partners and, and with anybody really. And it's felt, um, super amazing to be received in that way from my male partners. And also like the amount of times that they've thanked me for teaching them and been like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, this is so applicable in my relationship. So going back to what you said, like every, this information is for everybody and I think it is, I mean, a lot of times we talk about our cycle and maybe, you know, I'm guilty of this even in the past of being down on myself for feeling that way at that time of the month. And the way that I've readjusted thinking about it is like, no, these are superpowers. Like if I know this, then I can access this and, and use it as my superpower. Like, for example, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're creating the egg in that moment in time in your cycle, for me, I've noticed that I'm extra creative. Like I want to play music. I want to journal. I want to sing. And tapping into that feels really truthful and it brings me so much joy. And it's beautiful to recognize that and use that as like a superpower. I like to call it that way. But um, I think rephrasing the way we talk about it is also really important, like in this really positive light so that we are more accepting to it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, 
part of the reason I'm a writer is because I think stories are the way we connect to each other and the world around us. It, it, I can sit here and tell you about studies and data and everyone would fall asleep. The stories we tell shape our humanity. They shape how we're connected to each other. The story we've told about, about the menstrual cycle has not been very empowering. I, I've noticed a shift in the last five years too of receptivity, especially among men. And the same thing you're saying is like, thank you for telling me that. Like my husband, he read this whole book, but also I taught him all this. I had no idea. So everything, when it lines up and makes sense more, it's a way of making sense of the world in a way that the story was never written for us. You're rewriting the story and, and not making them feel bad, bad about it either. Like, hey, I, I'm just learning this stuff. I'm so interested in it. Isn't this interesting? And, and like one of the things about this book that I found really cool is dads who want to read it because they have daughters. And that makes me so proud because I make my, my dad, uh, wasn't really, <laughs> like, I don't think he, uh, would, would have done that back then, but maybe if the culture had been more accepting, um, just to understand how uh, your, your child's body works, or if you work with other female athletes, if you coach, if you're a teacher, like just to close yourself off from this knowledge, because you've been embarrassed about the story of it. You have a real opportunity there if you're open-minded enough to, to tell a different story and to not be ashamed of it. Um, I write a, a funny like anecdote from my life in this book because my my health sciences teacher in middle school called sex wrestling, and he would never <laughs> <laughs> and he like would not talk about the menstrual cycle, and he was also like the wrestling coach, which was just like interesting, a, very odd, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, it, oh, it was so cringy. It was so embarrassing. And, you know, the reason that that really is a bummer, it was funny, but the reason it's not as funny as it could be is because he, he was mislabeling something that really shaped the narrative, the experience, and he was linking it to something forbidden instead of being, and, and the boys in the class are giggling, the girls are red, and it's the same way we're ex exposed to childbirth or, like, breastfeeding or really any other reproductive functions our bodies do, we're really taught to be embarrassed by them. And one of my favorite things I learned about that kind of shame or embarrassment is the, the way you think about your body and its functions, including the menstrual cycle, really, it shapes your self-concept. Um, and menstruation is a big part of how you think about your body, so self-concept. And so if you're really ashamed of your functions, there's this there's this really cool study that says um, people who are, experience high levels of menstrual cycle shame they will have less sexual experiences, but they will take much higher sexual risks. So much risky, less sex, more risky. Um, people who have less of that shame, they will have more sexual experiences, but be way less risky. So this, the, what really is profound to me about that is the way you teach young people, or even now about the menstrual cycle and whether or not they carry shame about it, it's a pathway to sexual agency yeah, and safety. It's a safety issue. So I don't know. It's like, there's so, I mean, I, if you saw the news today or any time in the last year or so, there's a huge threat to this information. There's a, a reintroduced forbiddenness to talk about this subject that comes down to safety and agency. And I 100% think that's a threat to human rights. And I write about it in the book. This is a threat to human rights. So Absolutely. it's a big deal. I think it can be kind of shooed away and still feel like not important. Even when I think about it sometimes, I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is that important. And then it's actually one of the most important things to talk and write about 
ever is what I come back to. That's fascinating to Mm -hmm. link that. And it is so true. And it is logical when you think about the bigger picture, but it's so applicable. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. As you're speaking, I have so many side thoughts that are coming out because I'm like, oh my gosh, you could teach me so much. Well, I think it connects back to everyone's story. It's not like I grew up in a different world where my body was celebrated and I was, you know, I had a menstrual cycle ceremony. I was I felt like everyone else. This was embarrassing. It's a lot of work even now to, I think it feels really cathartic to talk about it now for us because there was so much of that hidden and quietness, like what you're saying on the skin track, feeling comfortable talking to to men and everyone about it. Like once you start, it's a lot easier, but the starting point comes with some baggage. Yeah, Like the way we grew up, you know? I'm thinking about a time when I was going for a really big day in Jackson in the National Park and I was on the skin track with a ton of like incredibly fit, fast individuals and I started like having these, yeah, cramping and feeling super low energy and in my head I was making up all of these excuses of what I could tell them to like basically back off and go to the car. And eventually I was just like, I'm just going to tell them the truth. But it took in that moment felt really courageous to be like, hey, this is actually what's going on. And then immediately all of them stopped and we sat down and had water and they encouraged me to continue on. They offered me Advil. They were like, what can we do to make this experience better for you? And to be received that way did feel, I don't know, it it was just being met with kindness and empathy as opposed to telling a lie and hiding it and skiing back down to the car and then contemplating it feeling that shame that you're speaking about like i think acceptance and normalizing it like i love how you just dove in and started talking about vaginal mucus and everything i'm like (laughs) yes we just need to have these conversations openly it's human health we all go through it and for whatever reason we don't talk about it that much well about your story too is like you could have lied and gone down and and been alone like isolated in the experience and instead you connected to a community and then the next time they're with someone um they're probably more likely to be open to that because everyone knows how talented and and the caliber of athlete you are no one's like oh michelle is just scared you know no one's gonna ever have that primary thought so if you're open about it i think that's so empowering to everyone else to be like you know if she can do it if she can respond to her body and respect herself and be kind about it and as a community, you're kind of leading that way of people to be open with their own bodies. Because that's what I, that's what I come back to is like your story is so it's so powerful how you share it with other people. Yeah. It actually, I think about this all the time is the stories we tell shape experiences. Mm-hmm. So in the first book, I wrote about pain and childbirth. So the stories we tell about painful childbirth. If you internalize that story before you have a baby, your experience of pain through research is much much greater. The menstrual cycle is the same thing. Young girls are told their first menstrual cycle will be painful. They will be emotional. They'll have bad moods. And the more you hear that, again, research supports that their experience will be more painful. They'll have more emotional dysregulation. Not only the menstrual cycle, but once you have hit menopause, which I also wrote about in this book, when your culture tells you you're going to have more pain or emotional dysregulation or depression, you have you usually have worse symptoms. And the way we know this in research um, is because they study it in different cultures. And so different cultures have different menopause or cycle experiences because of the way their their culture talks about it. So women in some places where the um, menstrual cycle is maybe more neutral or this is biologically normal, they tend to have less PMS and cramping symptoms. Um, not universally, because this is something that happens, you know, those those things are not made up. 
PMS is 100% real for people who experience it, but there is a cultural impact of how um, women are treated and, and their place in society and the symptom of their how they experience their reproductive health. That is so fascinating. It's really interesting to think of that in context of other situations as well, like having a fear of death. Mm-hmm. And exactly. how would you suggest you change that narrative that you're telling yourself? Is it through knowledge and understanding and like learning? Because that seems very applicable in this instance with our cycle. Yeah, I think there's just a total empowerment to understanding what your body's doing differently. Mm-hmm. So if my number one thing is is how we talk about it to each other. So instead of teaching girls that it's going to be really painful and terrible, explaining more, this is what you can expect and this is how it works. Because then if it is actually really painful from there, then it's something that we can treat or work on. And they should know when it's outside of normal. If they're having debilitating cramping, that is outside of normal. So empowering people with information gives them tools to know when it is outside of normal, when they should seek treatment, when they should tell the doctor instead of just being like, well, this is just the way that is. Right. Women should just be in pain. It's actually not normal. It's, 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 it, it shouldn't be horrible. You know, if it is, we can. there's strategies, there's things we can do, there's different um, ways we can treat it. And um, I think that's just, that's so empowering is like when, when we talk about it to our providers and when we tell our moms or dads or whoever is there for us in our communities, menstrual, the menopause uh, stuff I wrote about was the coolest because I talked a lot about the language we use um, kind of, there's a couple different neuroscientists I quote, I talk about in the book. And they really talk about emotional recategorization. So one of the examples is I use is hot flashes. So if you, if you have a hot flash when you're going through this change, which, you know, we can expect in our late forties or fifties, and you're, you, you go into that saying, this is abnormal. This is pathologized. This is bad. I should just, it it shouldn't be happening to me. Those symptoms are usually worse. Mm -hmm. But if you say, but if you're using more language, like this is a normal thing, maybe I need more rest. Maybe I need more care. Maybe I need more kindness with myself or more sleep, all these different ways of caring for yourself. Um, it, it, it changes the way you, you treat yourself and respond. So, so I think there's all these different strategies, I believe in not just information because information can be overload, but also just how you care for yourself. Totally. Um, and I know I write about self-care in this book and I really try to take it out of this like wellness. I'm going to sell you a, a like facial cream for a thousand dollars and more like this is this is the key to survival you know like how you care for yourself and others is really is really important so so there's a lot of ways in the books to to have a better menstrual cycle things you can try that are both research-backed and anecdotal yeah because both are important for our bodies but I, I don't know if that kind of answers the question but no it does too and it sparked another question which you were just kind of getting into and you wrote about beautifully in your book these very applicable ways of maybe easing those symptoms or taking better care of yourself in mm-hmm. those moments is there anything that you found personally that has you know made like a huge difference at all for you I think one of the biggest things that I will always talk about, especially as with my athletic background, is diversification of movement. Mm. Movement is one of the best treatments for, I think, everything, and and especially menstrual cycle pain um, and mood regulation. But a lot of us get stuck in this idea of we're going to work out for an hour a day. That's our exercise. That's our movement time. And there's this beautiful writer, Katie Bowman. She's a biomechanist. And her whole thing is increasing movement throughout your day. So 
we've kind of built our home to have places where we sit on the ground, where there's balls, where we can hang. Um, and, and what I think that's cool about with the menstrual cycle is there's some research that shows if you have worse cramping or menstrual cycle pain, there can be some uterine blood flow problems. We think a lot of it is prostaglandin, which is a type of pain chemical we can feel, but some of it seems to be uterine blood flow. So the way you treat your core, your pelvic floor, not just your six pack muscles, but your whole core, um, having strength there, and but not just strength, suppleness, movement, flexibility, um, kind of this full, really embodied full body strength and um, flexibility and adaptability. I, I just think this is one of the most important things that all of us have to relearn. Uh, my table downstairs you saw doesn't have chairs because we sit on the ground and it forces us to move more. Not everyone has to do that, but just I love the idea of instead of exercising for an hour, and then sitting the rest of the day, we're just, we're like crawling on the ground, we're moving around, we do lifting, we do food processing, just incorporating all different types of movement into my life is, is it just it adds a richness and a, it's like, I don't have to think about it. it. It nurtures my body in a way that I don't have to say, okay, now it's time to do my, my one hour ritual every single day. Cause I don't really have time for that. I need to build it into my environment. And so I think anything you can do that you can build into your environment to be a habit instead of imposing a should on yourself to me is so much more important than like, this is my X, Y, Z for biohacking, which I'm, I just cannot get behind. I love that answer. <laughs> and you spoke about it too, in your writing of like, rather than going to the gym for that hour, what if you are, you know, collecting food from your garden and using your body. And so you truly have built it into your environment, which is so intentional but also like opens it up to be just the way of life and it isn't it's second nature right yeah and i mean i love the gym like if i <laughs> yeah i i'm not against someone going and lifting i actually have weights around my house because it feels really good for my body to do that kind of heavy hard work i like the i, I love some of that exercise and, and gym time it's just for the fabric of my life i actually need more movement than that can provide so for me like i do really well climbing uh, and climbing trees, um, not just rock climbing outside. Like I, if I can build recreation until growing food and mm-hmm. in, in kind of my lifestyle, it, it's really empowering for me because you know, I, have, I have three little kids. My life has to be is hard because I'm hauling kids around a lot. I need, I need like a lot of diversity in my movement without the time to go to the gym or the time to go to the mountains all the time. Um, I find that really wonderful and it's a really good way to teach little kids without leaving them. Um, I, I still like the gym. I, I don't want to hate on what people, you know, I'm not a Pelotoner, totally. but yeah. if people love that, if it gives them catharsis or the workout they need, I, I think that's wonderful. But I think I would always say in addition to your workout movement throughout the day is just so powerful. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think in a way I've been, I'm like addicted to that. Like just Same. experiencing yeah. the big snowfall we had every single day. I was like, you're kind of looking forward to shoveling. Why is that? Like, I just want to move and I want to mm-hmm. be outside. Yeah. It's like built into our nature. If you're like in tune with that, I think you can really feel that. I think especially the outside time. There's yeah. like nothing more powerful to me than moving, movement, sleep, and outside time. It's like if you don't have one of those ingredients, I mean, for me personally, if I don't have outside sleep, and movement, I suffer. Everything yeah. suffers. It's yeah. like those, and, and it's cool because all of those are wrapped up together. So if you don't get outside time, you're not getting light exposure in the morning and then your cortisol rhythms are off and then your sleep is gonna be off. And so there's kind of this cascading effect 
and this overlapping of things that keep you feeling good. And they're really basic. I think that's the other thing I believe in is there's a lot of things about you should only do move this movement during this time of the month or only eat these foods during this time of the month. I don't find any of that sustainable. Mm. Um, I'm really not behind. I, I know people have written about that. I've, I've read those books. It does not work for my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more about paying attention in the moment seeing what feels right. But uh, I, I love that those those health building things overlap. They're not complicated. It turns out though that they are hard to adhere to. So for me, like this this book cycles, it's named for your menstrual cycle, but also like we have to cycle back to the basics all the time. Cause I can't, it, when you stay up too late, you're like, you cycle back to being like, oh man, yeah, sleep is so important. The basics are so, we all know them, but we all have to remember them constantly. Mm-hmm. I find that amazing. It's funny. You're like, yeah. I know this. I know I should drink water. I know I should sleep. But you you have to like build it into your, the memory has to be built into your life, just like in your habitat. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you have to remember it all the time. I find that crazy and, and really amazing. It is so fascinating actually, because I wore the whoop for like a few years actually, and I was tracking all this data and what I learned from it was drink more water, go to sleep at the same time, don't eat meals as late. And I was like, no kidding. Like <laughs> I know this stuff, but it made me more aware of it because I was looking at it every single day. Yeah, like some people are really making money off of. Yeah, totally. Being like, look, <laughs> you should really drink water. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, I mean that would probably be uh, more financially secure than book writing. But yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> think it's like the basics are so powerful, and and I think there is a lot of in this category that I'm in of reproductive health and cycle. Um, it, there is a, like a lot of technology or or pres- really prescriptive advice. And I, I just think it's like you you took that information that you were tracking and then personalized it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the end point is like, oh, I'm going to reconnect with myself better. Maybe there's a starting point where you're keeping track of information. Yeah. The end point is being like, I can pay attention to my body well enough now that I actually don't need this app to check in on me because I yeah. can check in with myself. Totally. And that's what I found because I yeah. feel like I outgrew it. And now I'm just like, okay, I know if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll have a better day. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty similar to you in that like movement, being outside and sleep are the three kind of pillars of my day-to-day health. Yeah. And you just spoke a little bit about how, because um, I've, I've learned in the past, there's certain things you can eat at certain times of the month. And did you just say you don't really prescribe to that because it's really hard to adhere to? You know, I thought about this a lot and I actually had recipes in the book that to me, they do support each phase of the cycle in ways that I describe. Like, so for example, during ovulation or pre-ovulation, your estrogen is going up. So I put a lot of cruciferous vegetables in there, things like bok choy and broccoli and cauliflower because they help with estrogen metabolism. The the problem I have with saying, don't eat this during this phase and eat it during this phase is I eat a pretty local food shed. So if you're telling me in the height of summer, not to eat tomatoes, and it's because it's whatever phase I I just can't get behind that because there's no way to really live in sync with my my local food shed if I'm eliminating certain foods it it puts me on a total dependency on you know foods that aren't grown locally so I I think like and and not to mention if I if if your food culture celebrates something that's not familiar to me I'm kind of discounting your your whole history 
you know, like if I'm saying everyone should have cauliflower during this time and you're like, well, cauliflower doesn't even grow here and that's not really in my history. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, I don't think it's right to tell people like this Western idealized notion of what's healthy and what's not. Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is like really reductive and, and really not honoring that there's billions of people in the world who eat differently than us and might have something that works for them that we don't even know about. So there's, we really, we love to do this in our Western culture is, is really prescribe what we do to everyone else in the world. And it's, 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 it's like, we're a pretty small proportion of the world to be doing that. It's pretty inappropriate to me. Mm -hmm. So that's why like these, these book, these lists of movement and lists of food in certain books to me, it's just, there's no universality of that. Like there's, it needs to be individualized to your culture and what makes sense. So things like, I, I do think things like turmeric and ginger can be really helpful for cramping or during that time. Um, if there are things that are, that you want to include in your diet and try, I, I think they'd be really powerful and they can help with that, with inflammation and things like that. But to, to say everyone should eat the same things during each cycle phase, I, I cannot get behind. I, I just, I can't support that based on like where I live and, and just the knowledge that people don't do things just like me, nor, nor should they. Absolutely. And we all live different lifestyles. That's mm -hmm. been something for me that's been hard when I am traveling so much. Like, I think my my whole thing with food is local, in-season, and organic in that order um, of importance, right? And, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. But when I'm on the road, like, moving so much, it's really hard for me to stick to any sort of routine when it comes to food. And so I try to just eat healthy in general. Mm -hmm. But I agree, like abiding by these rules sometimes for me it's been really helpful to shed those rules and just focus back on the basics like you were saying and i think also what's nice about shedding those rules um i've been really interested in this lately because i have a lot of unlearning to do about morality and food and we've been taught this diet culture and one of the number one things i would say before anything is is feeding yourself enough mm -hmm. i think there's such an emphasis on restriction and, a, and morality associated to certain types of food and having good versus bad food. I really think the first step of feeding yourself is get, is, is relearning how to think about food um, as not a moral issue. Like vegetables are not higher morality than chocolate. Right. You know, so when you're somewhere else, like having a little bit more acceptance. And kids have taught me that a lot because my own imposed morality of food came later and I, and maybe not in the healthiest way, um, so with them, I've had to be a lot more open, a lot more accepting, just understanding, you know, there's not really a morality with how you eat. You can, different food does different things for your body. But if you're so strict with yourself, like you said, if you're traveling, you won't be feeding yourself, which is the number one thing you need to stay alive is to, is to feed yourself and to have a cycle and to be healthy. And I think that that's really a nice point of, you know, loosening a little bit on that strictness and just, and, and nourishing your body and with the basics and everything else we talked about. And then being just like, you're going to serve, you're going to be okay. You know, like it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. Yeah, totally. And I've found to be quite honest, like I've adhered to certain diets at certain times, not often. And it's only usually I'm like, I'll try this for a month. And I've found within that month, say of trying X diet that I actually get a little bit more stressed during that time trying to feed myself exactly what I'm supposed to. And I'm like, that feels counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and, and you just start dreaming about all the things you can't have in this way that you're like, why can't I have this? I feel that so important to talk about is that when, when you're trying to hack your system or do a diet, you can't discount the stress of it. Yeah. And I think that's so important to talk about. People can be like, I'm doing everything perfect. 
but they're imposing so much stress and there's no real perfection in this. We don't know enough about food and nutrients that that science is still young. We know kind of the basics. Again, mm-hmm. we eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> it's like very healthy for our bodies. And there's in the book I talk about, there's the most research behind Mediterranean diet, but think about where research money is going and what's studied. Um, there's probably a lot of different definitions of health we're leaving behind. And I think that's where I get into like being embodied and being in your own body and paying attention to your to yourself versus following the rules that maybe are, are told to you by others. Yeah, um, right. Where did your interest in food and sustainability like spur from? So I think early, when I was four, I started making omelets. I've always liked cooking obsessively, like following the hardest recipes and cookbooks really really focused and really serious yes, about I it love that. it's really really <laughs> intense so we had, yeah yeah we had gardens and i grew up in maine before i moved to tahoe we had gardens there um when i went to college you know like most people i went through this, this total disenchantment and just just total i was so sad about the state of the world and food was a big part of that and so i started writing about local food um working for gary romano out in sierra valley i worked there through college shout out Um, to gary yeah i love you gary (laughs) and then uh you know i did journalism so and environmental science so i was was like i'm going to be a food science writer or or something with environment within environmentalism something about food something you know something in that category so i would i would uh, talk to local farmers talk about their experience and then i also wrote for edible magazine so so my my first thing with food is i love food mm-hmm. my i love flavors i love thinking about food I get pretty bored when we talk about the science of food. I write about it all the time, but I, it comes from a love of food and knowing people who grow it is like an extension of that love. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I want to talk about what we eat and the flavors and recipes. And, and it comes from my mom 100% because she's an amazing cook and taught me everything that I know how to do. So I think like for me, food always started as a love, as a flavor, as pleasure. And, and then you kind of layer in knowing how food is healthy for your body is really cool but for me it always starts from this place of just food is delightful like what a delightful thing we get to do to stay alive totally i I love sustainable food because you're connected to it like i know and down here in reno i know who grows our food and they're really good friends and i love them and and it's not really a virtue thing it's just i really like being connected in this way it Mm. makes me feel a sense of place where i am um a sense of rootedness in a culture that's really uh, transient, I, mm-hmm. I feel really connected because of food. So I think it's more than just righteous or virtue. It's just this This is what makes me feel whole in a, in a world that can feel intangible. Food you can hold, you can taste. Yeah. I just really like the experience. You it's really wonderful. Interrupting the podcast to thank one of our sponsors that makes this all possible. This podcast is brought to you by Peak Skis. Peak is a newer company based in Bozeman, Montana and founded by Bodie Miller. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary of producing skis and being on the market. And it's really incredibly impressive how high quality these skis have been within the first year of production. Bodhi wasn't just the winningest male ski racer in North American history. He was a ski designer who contributed to the invention of modern side cut and a slew of other innovations that skiers now benefit from. Bodhi won a lot because in large part, he understands skis and ski designs. Peak exists to drive innovation and think carefully about gear. It's springtime and that means first laps on fresh groomers are so in and skiing corn 
and beauty days in the backcountry. So as a result, I'm highlighting the 104 SCs and the 98 SC today as I have been loving these skis this year. And this is your side country version of the ski or backcountry. Um, there's less metal in there, there's lighter weight, and I absolutely love them, they rip. Very much looking forward to getting out on the 98 SCs when I return home from Alaska. I'd also like to thank Darn Tough Socks. These aren't just your run-of-the-mill socks. They're made with thought, precision, love, and yes, they're actually made with love. And these socks will likely outlast any other sock brand out there. Made to last for miles and miles. When I visited the factory, one of the things I was most impressed with was the quality control. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that every single sock is touched and inspected at least 10 times by different people before it leaves the factory and gets into your hands. Darn Tough is always doing good things for our greater community and it's a brand local to the US using high quality materials and straight up the most care goes into these socks. For those of you listening, Gary Romano operates Sierra Valley Farms, which is one of our highest altitude farms here locally. And he grows amazing things like wasabi and a bunch of lettuces and he's just a joy and he's written a couple of books about farming too but yeah i love that you brought him in because it's so true walking into the farmer's market and having a conversation with gary and then eating his lettuce i have more appreciation for that food and i think i take more time with that food and it i treat it better like i'll cook something amazing with that food because i have that relationship and it comes with a story, especially yeah. if Gary gives you a glass of wine, you're going to get a story. Yeah. And then you've been connected to a whole history of our place. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, it's just such a good entry point because most people really love eating and eating together is this very valuable thing we get to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can go on about that. It's really my entrance points, like food and athleticism and, you know, skiing are these kind of like two things that I always come back to or like the touch the touch points. And what you said about soil or, or dirt, like I, in the book, I talk about food. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to tell you what to eat diet wise. I don't believe in one thing or the other. Everyone's different. But I, I do encourage people think about the soil. Like if your if your food was grown using regenerative agriculture principles, because I find that a little more guiding than like paleo or carnivore, or all these like total money making, like total BS diets people have constructed that they, that, you know, they're selling you something. But soil health, you know, it's it's not it's the most important thing we can do or think about and what we're choosing. And not everyone has that privilege, but if you do. If you can buy things that promote soil health, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's a cool thing. And it's just, it's really neat to connect you. Totally. And again, what you're saying is going back to the basics, like not prescribing to X, Y, and Z diet, but like, what about the dirt? Like that's yeah. just like, again, bringing it back down home to like mm-hmm. back down to earth. No pun. Yeah. Um, back to cycles. Cause I'm so fascinated by this. The first part one is called reclaiming your cycle. And I'd love for you to talk just a bit about that phrase in and of itself, because I think it is a valuable part of this. So I think this is so important uh, to say first is this book was not written as a romanticization. I'm not trying to say your cycle is beautiful and it's flowers and rainbows. It's just like this, this is what, like what we're talking about is a fundamental um, experience. And there's this really wonderful writer, uh, Ingo Winkler, She says it's fundamental because it unites the personal and political, the intimate and the public, and the physiological and the socioculture. So so this reclaiming your cycle is understanding that the menstrual cycle isn't just happening in your body. It actually is this really interesting uniting point for humanity, and it's a human right. So 
Um, understanding that this thing you're learning about is your human right and it connects you to how you understand your body and other people. Um, it's it, the reclaiming your cycle is reclaiming the story. Mm-hmm. It's how you've been, what we've talked about so much is how you've been taught. You kind of have this opportunity to say like, oh, wait, if I was internalizing shame about this, that's just not, it, it, that actually isn't the biggest story here. It's more interesting how that happened and then having this time to really um, reconnect and have ownership of your body and knowing that your body isn't broken. It's not shameful. It's actually just like really adaptable and, and capable and it's performing these functions that we maybe don't talk about enough in a way that's just fa- like, I, I really come from this as from a point of fascination, mm-hmm. all reproductive health, like how, I mean, it's, it's like the, the first book I wrote, how, how to grow a baby. It's like, whether or not you grow a baby, you were once grown so I think this information should be fascinating to everyone. So it's not really like you should love your menstrual cycle or you should always have one. It's just we should know how this works and we should be able to talk about it in a way that's that's a, a story that is empowering instead of a shame a shameful story. Yeah, you know? in a more inclusive way. And yeah. in part two, you talk about the four seasons of your cycle, which I really loved diving into a little bit in reference to the seasonality of what we experience in nature. So I so this is cool because I I didn't come up with the four seasons of the cycle. Um, that it just turns out that mo- a lot of us who who experience a cycle, we've noticed there's a resonance between the seasons and the experience in your body with each phase. Mm-hmm. And what I find the most powerful about that is that you you can't see your ovaries or when you ovulate, you can't see what's happening, but you can experience uh, seasons. You can see them, you can feel them, you can. There's a tangibility there, and I think having you know, your, say your bleeding phase connected to winter, you can feel that kind of retreat or being cozy. If that's your experience, there's a, there's a connection to the rhythm of your body with nature, which for so many of us is, is one of the most valuable connections we'll ever feel as humans. Cause there's a lot of disconnection in our culture built in, you know? So if we can find ways to reconnect to rhythms in nature through our bodies, I find that to be the most embodying and one of the most important parts of my life is to, to feel that you're part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really neat. Yeah. There's a connectivity there. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah. And, and you know, it's not it, throughout history, different cultures uh, have linked the cycles in your body to seasons. It's, it's, it's just, there's a historical context there and, and it's really valuable for a lot of people to do that. Yeah. So, so cool. I'm going to take a right-hand turn here because I just had this thought come up, but (laughs) let's say I'm standing on top of the cliff and I'm scared. Is there a way to hack the system or is it more about moving with the system? I think that depends on your system. Yeah. (laughs) I think we've all been there where we've been in a, I mean, I've been there, I've been there on a climb, a lot of pitches up. You probably have too. I've got a cam stuck and, and had, there's sometimes you have to go through the thing, move with it. Because right. you're there, and I've been in a full panic trying to get a cam out of the of the wall, like nine pitches up, and just this this has to happen. Yeah, there's just times where you got to move through it. So I think, and so then you're like, okay, what are what are my tools? I've got tools. I have them. I have meditation. I have my breath. I have my body. I have a moment to calm down. There's all these different tools you 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 have to know how to use just to be alive in the world. Because there's times where you can't you know, not send. Yeah. If you have the chance to choose not to do it, you can, but there's so many times in life where you're like, 
you, you're in a situation you, you don't want to do and you, you kind of got to do it. So I think having these tools, um, ways to really touch base with yourself, to talk the way you talk to yourself, the way you breathe, the way you feel in your surroundings. Um, you just have to have those tools because there's sometimes you just can't not do it. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And you have a lot of those tools written down in this book, which I think, again, going back to it, there there's not a lot of fluff there. They're just like, these are really applicable things you can do that are easy. And I think the more often we incorporate those tools into daily life, the more applicable and natural it becomes to use them when necessary. Yeah, if you're not only thinking, if you're if you're in a crisis and you don't have anything built around you to help you adapt, yeah. I think that's you know what you're saying about superpowers during your cycle. Like this is when you feel really creative. Um, knowing how to tap into that and knowing where you're at in your cycle. And if you're feeling certain things, you can contextualize it. And then maybe knowing what works best for you in that like unique context is going to be really powerful for adaptation. Because um, health to me is really like, how, how well are you adapting? Um, what are your tools for adaptation? Uh, that's, you know, we can kind of make an argument that that's part of being healthy is your ability to adapt and, mm-hmm. and, and be resilient. So I, I think what you're saying, yeah, having these tools, to me, they're, they're, they're not, I mean, like, they're not fluffy to they're just very i love practicality one of them is going on walks with friends like that being part of there's so much cool research about um going on a walk with a friend there's research about this forward momentum and forward thinking and how we even navigate conflict and worldview that will kind of even your stride the way you breathe will kind of like adapt to each other and find a rhythm so there's i i think like having these different tools and knowing how they work can be really helpful but like you said they have to be part of the fabric of how you're living your life and like this has to be intentional as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so cool though that's like such a simple thing going for a walk with your friend and and the simplest things get the least attention i think i always think about this with the books is i am so into the basics into the things that are simple and and those don't get the most intention attention but they're so profound it's just really good mr rogers quote where he says, you know, I, he's more into things that are, um, simple and deep than, uh, complex. And he, what does he say? Um, think he has this quote basically about like simplicity and deepness that it being the most important things we can really, I used to be able to quote that again. Yeah, I love but it though. He has yeah. these really nice quotes about like what, you know, what is most valuable actually is not really what buy is bought and sold. And then you can't help but talk about capitalism and patriarchy, which we all kind of, you know, it's a lot more in our culture now, but that that's the way it shapes it is like the things that you're actually willing to spend time and money on, they should, they, they don't need to be um, so guided by what you're told by the culture as much as like what you find on your own path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bring it. I love that so much. And, and I love how your mind works where like, I would never research walk going for a walk with my friend and you're like, what are, what are the benefits to going for a walk with your friend? I think I originally looked that up because there's some research about not just friend, but like if you're in an argument with your significant other that, that you do a lot better, uh, problem solving if you go on a walk together. I love that. And I do I I do much better talking with people or working things out if I'm in motion. So there's this thing about being in motion for humans 
um, that that is really a, a, a regulation device. And there's some cool research about babies even that they'll if what if you're on a walk with them they'll cry less, their heart rate slows down. Like we're just made to be in this in this wave of motion. I find that like so empowering. And I don't know, there's just not enough walking walkers. Yeah, <laughs> like walking is one of those things you really find later in life because you kind of start beating yourself up as much and you're like this feels good this is this is really healing and and rejuvenating for your body instead of always crushing yourself so yeah i i I like to look up well what exists like what literature exists to support the things we feel Mm -hmm. that are to to be true because a lot of times with science you're like oh that that makes sense and 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 it should but it's cool there's someone decide to study it Totally. You know, it's like you don't need someone to tell you that feels good because it feels good, but it's cool if you read something that supports that. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And you saying that, actually, I was just reflecting on yesterday. It was a beautiful spring day in Tahoe, and I went for a hike with two of my close friends, um, one who I've known my entire life and one who's newer. And uh, my old friend, Glenn, decided to leave a lap early, and I took his girlfriend for this second lap, or we went together, and I didn't know her super well. But by the time I dropped her off at home, we had been so vulnerable and so open with each other. Like we knew everything. It felt like we were old friends all of a sudden. And it was this beautiful recognition of that simplicity of moving up a mountain and experiencing that together in motion at a slow pace with no expectations, like opened us up to like, I don't know, this incredible connection. Yeah, I think in in my first book I have, you know, kind of a quote about with walking it's like you, you can't capitalize on it nothing can be bought and sold and it's in these like unproductive almost like wasted moments according to our economy where like magic lives right you know it's just like how do we value the things that are valuable instead of what we're told to value i think to i'll i'll, I'll reference book about walking all the time walking is like the it just integral to what we like how we move through the world, the pace of our thoughts, the pace of our bodies. Um, so of course I have it in both books because it's walking. Luckily I can link you back to, well, your pelvic health and I can, you can go into the alignment of your body. You can go into blood flow um, and how, your perception of each other in the world. It, it's just so supportive in this way. That's really, it's really beautiful because most people can feel that change, but to know it's like physiologically supportive too, I think is really neat. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, where do we go from here? Do you want to touch any more on the four seasons of our cycles? I think as far as the four seasons, um, it's just really cool to, to think about your four seasons. Yeah. And so in the book, I talk about things you might feel. It's not a universal experience always, but it's, you know, I think there's a lot of resonance with paying attention to your body that way. And I think like there's also this step of getting past the feeling of like, oh, this is cheesy or um, not real. And just and then instead just kind of being a little bit more sincere with your own body, you know, mm-hmm. like respecting it and, and and trying new things and being openly curious. I think that's the, always the most important thing when you're learning something new is like how how do I be open to this? How do I be curious? How do I find the community like you found that is receptive and kind and empathetic um, to talk about it? Uh, so there's a lot in the four seasons that I think is really fun. There's all these recipes and movement, but but you know. I think knowing, contextualizing the menstrual cycle before you get to those four seasons, I find really important because you're, you're, you're kind of exploring the stakes. Why did this matter? What has happened before now? 
and why is this such a big deal to learn? Mm-hmm. You know, because the, the stakes are high. It's like how you think about reproductive health and reproductive rights. And so there, there's like a duality to this of paying attention to your own body so that we understand ourselves better, but also that we can, so we can extend care to ourselves, to other people in our community. Mm-hmm. And then with that four seasons, you play into exploring the four seasons of your life. Yeah, that was, I, I couldn't believe with this book how much fun I would have writing about menopause. Yes. Um, because, you know, what I really thought about was with our menstrual cycle, however however ridiculous your education, or, or maybe you had a good education, I don't know. My, mine was re- very ridiculous about the menstrual cycle. Really great from my mom, really bad in school. At least you're in a classroom sitting down talking about it. No one's like, hey, it's you're how old are you? It's time to come to menopause class and learn what's going to happen. Like, <laughs> no, and so most people are just bl- you're blindsided. And and the the thing with menopause, menopause itself is the day one year since your last menstrual cycle. Your menopause is a day. The menopausal transition can be years, and all these symptoms and these changes. And it's and and for me, learning about your menstrual cycle is setting you up to know how to take care of yourself during menopause, the menopausal transition, when that care requirement is higher. I think I'm almost 35. I think that's one of the most appropriate times to really start thinking about this, because the variability of my estrogen project, uh, production might change at this point, and my my progesterone production is probably going to start going down a little bit. There's this insidious change that we're all going to experience, and we can expect to live fully a half of our life in a postmenopausal um, body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the coolest things too about writing about menopause is it links you to evolutionary bi- biology. So there's this really uh, wonderful researcher. She talks about the grandmother hypothesis. And basically there's um, not a lot of other animals that live past their reproductive um, stage. So so a lot of animals will reproduce, they'll raise young, reproduce, raise young, and then they'll, they'll die. But um, humans and orca whales and a couple other mammals, they live a long, a long time past their reproductive lifespan, you know, almost half of your life, like I said. And the reason we think this happens is because um, basically grandmas become uh, ecological havens of knowledge. Like orca grandmas, if there's no salmon supply where they are, they, they remember where to find it. And so what, hap- what they found is that these both whale and human grandmas increase the survivability of young children, um, you know, their grandchildren. So what I think is really cool about talking about menopause is this, this celebration of, of how we age and how we think about our bodies and our value in a culture that really links aging to a decrease in value. Mm-hmm. Kind of having, it, again, a new story of your, your values increasing as you age. You know, you're, you're, you're important for the survivability for ecological knowledge for the next generation in this way that's just it's pretty like it's pretty progressive as an evolutionary idea that is really focused on you know natural selection and reproduction this is kind of a, a you know a turn of an expansion of that like you have value into your whole life yeah um so that's why i really liked writing about this uh, uh menopause and even our, even our reproductive health in general is often talked about you know maybe as like hormone problems or like um, estrogen deficiency, something to be treated and cured instead of understanding what's actually happening in your body and knowing when treatment is or isn't necessary, what it will actually help, 
what the history of this is. Uh, so that's why I, I would talk about menopause forever. It's not the only part of cycles, but, but man, it's so, especially if you're in your thirties or forties, like th this is the time to learn and prepare for this thing that will happen and talk to your, talk to your mom, your aunts, who, people who have gone through it. Like, what was your experience? I didn't really have that talk with my mom until I was writing this book. And it was fascinating to me that that was not something that I was curious about because it's an inevitable part of our life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, you know, it is, it's, it, I like talking about the first period through the last because that is really the rhythm that your body is living um, through your lifespan. So there's there's no way to not talk about the end of your cycle or the beginning because the middle, you know, you don't live your whole life there. You're not cycling your whole entire life. It changes in length and quality um, and the hormones change at the beginning, they change at the end. So, so that's why I found that like so, so fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting. And I'm drawing so many connection points and, and also just wanted to add to that. Cause I've heard like talking to your mom about their birth experience and learning all of these things, it's probably going to be relatively similar for you. Is that correct? Well, yeah, my mom has really shaped the way I think about birth and, uh, raising kids, you can really feel your, your parents. I think when you, when you have kids or, um, with your menstrual cycle, the way, the way she's passed on information has been incredibly empowering for me. And, and not everyone has that story. There's a lot of trauma within reproductive health. I got really lucky and, and learning how I'm lucky in the story that I was given by her, I hope to write about it in a way that's gifting that to other people. Mm -hmm. um, she, she wasn't taught that way. She was given a book about reproductive health in her underwear drawer. That was the extent no way. Yeah. of her information. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, wow, you really, you really stepped that up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like this generational uh, connection of, of your, the way you experience your body is shaped by generations before it. Yeah. I think that's really neat. Like it's very cool that we have that. It's, it's very powerful the way we talk about this Yeah, for other people. Another similarity that I was drawing from talking about the orca whales and our elders is to old growth trees and how old growth trees typically are the knowledge keepers. And they not only pass on that information to their own kin, but also to the entire ecosystem around them. And I think, yeah, it just is. That's like, such a beautiful connection to draw it back. Yeah. In. Yeah. It's so important. Um, I've been playing a ton of pickleball with my dad lately and uh, playing an act or doing an activity with a bunch of 70 plus year old individuals and having meaningful conversations with them has, I don't know, I just have so much respect for that phase of life and so much more care and attention towards it right now with everything I'm experiencing with my dad's health. Mm -hmm. um, that it's 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 just opened up my eyes to yeah like these elders are the old growth of our forests they're the knowledge keepers and they i mean they've just lived, they've lived for so long they have so many stories and my father-in-law passed away this year and it was just the most heartbreaking experience you know in their in in the, our family's life and for my husband and his family and we went to his funeral and, and the stories they told and, and knowing where he came from and knowing his story. It's the same as what you're talking about. You're like, this is, this is the haven. This mm. is where knowledge comes from. There's so much wisdom in visiting this person's life and learning from it. Um, and I think that changes the way you treat people, including how you value yourself as you age, which we all kind of need to learn differently about, is really loving and valuing and respecting people who have had different life experiences. Um, I thought about that a lot because, because my, 
my father-in-law was really open to my writing. He's like, oh, you're, t- you're writing about reproduction, reproductive health. And we talked about it a lot. And it was really interesting to talk to someone who was way older or like my dad yeah. or, you know, old, old men. about <laughs> Menstrual cycles is pretty new for me. It's not always comfortable. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but but that there's any openness, you, you can see there's a capacity for learning or for change and, and connection with people who are much different than you and came from a different place. That is fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as we are doing this podcast, your mother is outside taking care of your three littles. She's literally keeping my children alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I've read some of your writing talking about that connection with the grandmother. Can you talk about that? Because I found it really interesting when you touched on that. I think it was maybe just in an Instagram post, but it was fascinating. I, I know it in the first book I wrote a lot about how, you know, um, your <laughs> with my mom, she would show up not only or, or in both books I've talked about, you know, this this here's this evolutionary idea of the grandmother hypothesis. And and my personal experience of that is my mom not only will show up and be holding an infant, she'll show up with food from the garden and chicken and, and eggs from our from our family's ranch. Um, it's just a really direct example of her caretaking and what she's passed on, on to me is this ability to, um, understand what care looks like Mm. and the value of care. So I talk a lot about care and maintenance in, in both books, because we're really taught the value of productivity and, and, and producing something and making something all the time. And we don't really talk about maintenance, Uh, maintenance being like, how do you nurture what, what is and take care of what is and value it for what it is. Um, so she's really taught me so much of that. And without her, I, I, I can't really see my life working. Like right now she's, she's keeping three kids safe out there, presumably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, I, my value, you know, I think a lot of what you learn about this way can really connect you to, to your parents or your mom in a way that's, that's so beautiful. And for me, certainly writing about it, uh, I think a lot of us can remember being teenagers and not really valuing our parents as much as they deserve. Sure. And so now I, I'm pretty aware of what I've, what I've got with her and it's, it's huge. Like it's yeah. just, it's so wonderful. Um, and also, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit as, as identity and, and how you, um, think of yourself as a parent or as a writer, you know, she's a really good example of someone who's not just one thing. She's, she's wild and she loves freedom and she loves moving through mountains, but she's also really good at caretaking and understands where little kids are coming from. There's just perspective shift. I think that we, we need to embody when we fulfill different roles of, you don't have to be one thing. You, you have an opportunity here to, to think of yourself as something vast and yeah. complex and changing. It's, and you, it sounds like with your mom, you probably have that gift too. She's she's pretty much a skier through and through, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. But I was thinking about that this morning when I was like so excited to come down here and have this conversation with you. And simultaneously, it's this beautiful spring day in Tahoe. And so I have like these little heartstrings that are like, oh, ski touring would be awesome today. But I'm like, oh, wait, there's this whole new side of myself that's really fascinated in other aspects of life. And I think that's really healthy for my overall well-being is to have like multi-dimensional personality and not just solely about skiing. And my partner and my parents and other people have opened me up to that idea. It's similar <laughs> to like diversity and movement. Like we got to entertain and, and not entertain, but use our brains in different ways and make these different connection points and build new neural pathways. And I think that's part of evolution as a person. Yeah, and I think that's funny because I always tell my kid the hardest thing about life because of my experience is that you you actually 
can't do everything you want to do in a day. Yeah. Because I've always wanted to do too much. And now I've kind of found if I'm doing one thing too many, like if I have 12 things going on instead of 10, if I'm juggling too much, I'm stressed. If I don't have enough, I'm also stressed. There's a middle point where like we can juggle a lot, but if you overextend it or underextend, it doesn't feel good. But I, I always tell them like the hardest thing about cooking is waiting. The hardest <laughs> thing about life is you cannot do everything you want to do in a day. And and I think you're right. Like um, there's always going to be a weighing of, okay, I can, you know, I'm going to, there's so many things you can do in a day. There's so many different things you can get interested in in life. And there's a lot of space to do that, but it's a choice. And there's so much to choose from every day. It's really hard to narrow it down. That's been the experience of having kids is what can I, what three things can I accomplish today? And, you know, for me, that's been a huge challenge, but the, the benefit of that is time is sacred. Mm-hmm. If you learn whether or not you have kids, whatever your life is, there's two things like time, you know, and attention. These are the sacred things in life. Like how do you spend your time and what are you paying attention to? Because it turns out those, those are the two things that make your life. Like what you, what you spend time on and what you pay attention to, it shapes your experience of the world, that and your body. So I think paying it, that's for me writing these books is if you put time and attention into your body, um, that's fundamental to how you experience the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just so, it's so important. It's, it's the key to embodiment. Um, it's, it's living by what you feel in your senses and understanding it and how you show up, that shapes how you show up in the world. I couldn't agree more. And to be quite honest, reading your book lately, because I just received it, it is new. Um, I found myself living with more intention just based off of a couple of the simple things that you've written about. Like there was one excerpt where you talk about meditation and you applied it to like, yeah, uh, questioning if you really needed this face serum that's like super expensive or not. And you meditated on it and you were like, no, I don't need that. And sometimes you might default and get the face serum, but other times you can just be more realistic about the why behind your desire to consume. Um, Yeah, I just, I found that really, it's helped me just be more intentional with my time. I don't have kids and right now I'm home alone. And so my time is, it is super valuable. I have a lot of things going on, but making sure that I don't pick up the phone and get into a scroll or whatever it is, I find the phone to be the most uh, engaging thing that is a distraction. Um, Lately, I've had no internet, so that's been really awesome just to be like, I'm gonna read this book and dive into cycles. Um, But yeah, thank you for that because there's a lot of intentional practices that are, are quite simple in the book and I appreciate that. Well, I think like, you know, I'm, I'm not a Zen Buddhist. I'm interested in it. I read a lot about it because I need it. So yeah. I think in writing this book, I wrote <laughs> this book, I, I wrote the first half before my second child was born. And I wrote the second half starting three days after he was born, which I would never recommend to any person <laughs> living. But every single thing in this book that I wrote about was this reminder to myself in a time that was extremely challenging of what I needed to be okay and to survive. So mm-hmm. everything I wrote about was, it, it, it's like, it's contextualized by personal experience, not just myself, but in hundreds of people I've talked to, what works for them and what works for me. So I think there's, including in research, you know, um, so I think like what you're saying is it's the same thing. You have to cycle back to it. Cause if you spend a day, if you waste a couple hours scrolling, you're like, you, you kind of learn from that being like, oh yeah, I forgot this feels terrible. Right. So I, I don't think you should ever beat yourself up for doing that. It's just knowing like what you said, 
how we continue to value other things and, and, and have and re- revisit that choice and, and pay attention to what does feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not like that's going to be perfect forever. It's just, it's knowing we can get back there and how to kind of re recenter and reground ourselves. Totally. And I talk about that in the book too. It's like, what, what are the tools you can get back to that plant your feet firmly and ground you um, in the earth? And, and one thing I, you know, I'm a family nurse practitioner. One thing I always do before I enter a room, because I'm entering a room where I don't know what's going to happen. And that can be, really hard and chaotic. I always put two feet on the ground. I learned this from a physician up in Tahoe who's, who's wonderful. You put two feet on the ground, you take a deep breath, you feel your feet on the ground, and then you walk into the room. And her lesson doing that and how I see patients and how I live my life, it's actually just a little step and it makes a huge difference. Because mm. I can start, start something new or start this experience, start a conversation from a place of being in my body and being okay. And I think skiing for me is so much like that too. It's like I I, I found so much more value in, in being in my body more um, and having less expectations on it. Like from ski racing, I always had this, it was really angsty. It was really challenging. And as I matured in it, it was just more, much more of this groundedness within my body and understanding like how it was moving and in and, and the world and being more intentional about it. I don't know if you found that too, but like how you kind of start shapes the experience. Yeah. You know? Totally. I, it kind of brought me to this thought of um, when my therapist it has helped me a lot with sports psychology and developing rituals that start your day off on the right foot, um, for lack of better terms. But like one of those things is, is having something that you put on your body that grounds you and centers you and reminds you to do whatever it is. For me, it's currently this outfit that I got to design with Arcteryx. And every time I put that on, it's what I'm filming in this year. I'm like, this is my body armor and it's an invisible force field and it embodies confidence and it helps me to just remind myself when I put that on. And and it's just like internal, right? But it really does shape the way that I approach skiing that day, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's like recognizing the most important thing is how you talk to yourself and yeah. like how you perceive your place in the world and that there's all these strategies you can use that I, I think like the more absurd these strategies are, the better. Like they should be silly and they like you should be able to laugh about them. Like there's just a lightness you can approach, a lightness and curiosity to your own self. And I found very importantly also my partner that like if we can bring this kind of like this, this humor to our relationships and to ourselves and this curiosity that like we are so much more resilient and able to visit into things that are meaningful than if we're really serious with ourselves, if we're really hard on ourselves. Um, humor is a big part of what I think is so important. It, it gives us an opportunity to talk about things that are hard, mm-hmm. to relate to each other about things that are traumatic. Um, I think it's discounted a lot. My favorite writer, my mentor, he's a environmental humor writer. And you heard that right, because this is the saddest thing ever. And he he has a way of connecting to you because he's funny. And so I think when you're like kind of laughing, saying, this is my armor, this is my superhero outfit, there's nothing more powerful than being kind of like, you know, like it has this profound meaning, but you're able to talk about it in a way that's kind of funny. I, I, a reproductive health, I find like that too. It's like, this does not have to be a stoic, like overly sincere, like I, I'm not trying to preach about it. It's like, it's just like, this can be funny too. And and, and there's really interesting research that in menop- during menopausal transition, if you have a community where you can kind of, you know, talk about the experience, the, the parts that aren't as glorious or like really joke or just share it, there's this huge catharsis and like having this 
um, community where you can really talk about it. It's almost more powerful than like any medication is having a community where you can be like, this this happening now? You know, because there's humor to our bodies. Like, I think that's so important too. Is like our bodies do weird stuff. Yeah. And it can be funny and it, and it can be horrible. But I think bringing that in and, and being open to it being kind of funny and, and, and not embarrassed. And that's also, you know, the antithesis to embarrassment is something yeah. that's funny. It's like, how do you laugh about? It's, it's really healing to be able to laugh about things that have been totally embarrassing before. Telling the story. Totally. You know? The, I, for whatever reason, got on this kick of thinking it was absolutely hilarious when someone walked in on you in the bathroom. <laughs> Like when the door doesn't lock and someone walks in and I would just start laughing so hard. And I noticed that most people's reaction was this discomfort. And I'm like, we all go pee. It's all good. <laughs> well, you've probably been on like a, I've been on a couple of traverses on glaciers. Right. Where you have to go pee. Oh yeah. And <laughs> like you're on a flat white. Yeah. And like you could go a mile away. You're good. So you just go next to each other. Yeah. And you're like, this yeah. is, yeah, it's universal. You're like, this is happening yep. right now. So I think, yeah, like being in. That's why I think discomfort and, and athleticism and, and skiing and being in mountains is really important too because you get comfortable with discomfort mm-hmm. or you learn how to live in discomfort and there's so many parts about biology that, that, that can be really uncomfortable. Yeah. And if you're in environments that force you to kind of laugh about it and also be resilient and adaptable through it, you, you end up just kind of being capable in a lot more other, many other places in your life too. I agree. Um, one of the things that I was really looking forward to bringing up just to round it out is talking about Ducky Goes Up and your brother. So it's it's so cool because so my brother has Down syndrome. Um, he lives with my family. So there's six of us currently living in this home, which is a lot of people. It's an amazing life we've been able to create and craft. Um, he lived in group homes before with other people with disabilities and then moved in with us about six, seven years ago. And so much of the story starts with, we call him Bob. Uh, his name's Andrew. We call him Bob Hammer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what we found with Bob is like, he thrives with the basics. Like there's, there's, he doesn't need a lot of, he needs a lot of attention, needs time, good food, a lot of movement. And it turns out for him, that all made it so he was able to do something like be the first person with Down syndrome to climb the Grand Teton. And for us, it was kind of like, it couldn't be this huge overwhelming goal. It had to be another day that we go on a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. It's a really long walk. This is the longest walk of my life. Yeah. Was it, was, it in one day or you guys slept? We did. We slept up there. Yeah. yeah so we, we took our time. We went with a wonderful group of people. Um, so Ducky Goes Up is the story of, of Bob's life, but culminating in his experience climbing the Grand Teton with me and my husband and our, and our crew up there. And what I love about this story is it it is this like super, we have so many friends that do really amazing feats of athleticism that have, you know, people who run the Grand Teton in like two hours or something. I don't know. Ours was, the, we call it the slowest known time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it just, it, it's a way of um, celebrating what he did did and not making it about his disability mm-hmm. um it's just more like he's in community with us we did this thing it was super fun we made a movie about it which was also really fun and and part of you know living with someone like bob is including humor in our lives um that's why my husband and i get along probably so well and can kind of tolerate the extreme chaos of our life mm-hmm. <laughs> you know with little kids it's like we have a lot of humor between us and and bob brings so much of that like so much of growing up with him was finding the funny moments and learning how to be in the world with someone like Bob, who is really different, who isn't immediately comfortable for people. My job really was 
teaching people how to connect to him. How do, how do you talk to him? Mm-hmm. How do you get along with him? And, and it turns out like being extremely silly. Um, like we, we sang like Batman songs the entire time. We're like, I was like, Bob, you can do it. You're a champion. Like we just, we said the most ridiculous things for like 30 hours, you know, doing yeah. that climb. Like just the, the tactics we used were, were different. The training we did was, was, um, you know, a little bit non-traditional. We yeah. Did, was, they asked me and I was like, we did a lot of composting, a lot of hiking, <laughs> <laughs> we, like, carried babies, pushed the stroller, you know? It, so Bob, the way we live with Bob in that movie is a really good uh, glimpse into like the joy of Bob, like Bob at his best. Yeah. If you want to have like 15 minutes where you just want to like laugh and cry with joy, you watch Ducky Goes Up. Yeah. My kids have watched it probably a thousand times. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> it's really sweet. Like there's Bob. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of my memories of being with you when you were kids were like just, yeah, Bob was so funny and so amazing to be around. And he brought this lightness and joy into like every single day. It was, it was just really cool to like, I got to connect with him this past fall, I think at a POW event. And I was like, yes, I haven't seen Andrew in so long. It was really special. Yeah. And he, I think he taught like, cause I can be, you know, from ski racing, like overly focused, overly competitive. Um, and he brought total lightness to my life. Yeah. Like in this way that our whole family can kind of be more open and silly, uh, and accepting with each other. And there's so much humor and, and so much understanding once you like know Bob and, and, and know the story. It just kind of can open your heart in a way that's really sweet. So the way we've connected people through Bob's story has been so wonderful because people bet. are just like, this is just so nice. It's like not about Down syndrome or about, you know, it's it's just like a more of a celebration of life. And yeah, uh, I, I don't know. It's just like such a jolly, <laughs> like you so goofy. Yeah. And there was like so much goofiness on that adventure. It's a really good look at like what I find so meaningful about living life. Like just absurd, like ridiculous, fun, but like really important too. Like all those, all those elements are in it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Bob's been a huge inspiration. He also like, as I've done all my medical training, he's been my guy that I've like learned to listen to heart sounds and, and like do physical exams on it. He's very, mm. he's so patient. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, he's kind of been with me through everything. Like I talked to him about, you know, boys and the first time I told anyone I like loved Max and my husband now, I probably talked to Bob about it and they have a sweet bond. So Aww. yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> they do have a, a sweet bond and Max has the most beautiful ski turn. <laughs> So, I mean, incredible. I don't want to be biased, but he's definitely the, he's, he's one of the best skiers in the world for sure. I think so too. Yeah. He, yeah. And he, crazy. he made uh, Ducky Goes Up, Yeah. Right? He's a filmmaker. Yeah. Filmmaker, yeah. incredible storyteller, just an incredible all around person. Yeah. yeah. He, he just has ability to like get, get it with Bob. Like yeah. you can kind of vet humans through Bob. Like, do you get it or are you kind of like uncomfortable? And right. He, he just, like, I think the first time. Um, Max met Bob. He was just like cradling him in his arms, spinning him. Oh my god! Within like an hour, I like love just that. just so much. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like he they love each other. Yeah. Like if Max is like I wanna like if he's not getting what he needs like a hug from me, he'll just like go on Bob. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, is there anything? Are you working on another book already? I I have ideas. I I, I have a um a, a fresh baby. She's three months old. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have a third book idea, a, a many many book ideas. But yeah, I'll definitely continue writing. I don't have one con- 
right this second because I just need, I just started, yeah. yeah, And I just started a new job as a nurse practitioner. Um, so I kind of need to do that and, and have a a little bit more space and time. Yeah. I wrote both these books with small children during nap time Mm -hmm. and with a lot of family support. I'd like to write my next book with, with childcare because it'd be really nice. Yeah. You know, um, one of the hardest things about writing a book is if you get distracted and I've written these books with the maximum distraction that a person can have. Um, just the amount of times I've written a sentence and then had to get up and, you know, when the kid was napping to, to nurse them back to sleep or to soothe them, I just had to be hundred percent willing to leave my work and come back to it, which gave me a really good relationship. These, these projects took a long time because they're so research-based. So I've had this, I've found that with writing time equals quality, the amount of time you can put into it and revisit it and re-edit it and challenge your assumptions and end up on a path you didn't expect. Um, I, I just value things that are created slowly and intentionally. And so kids have actually given me that gift of creating something that has to be meaningful because my time is so valuable. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm, there's no plan to ever stop working on this stuff. I have some much stuff I want to work on. Well, that's um, music to my ears. Yeah. I love absorbing it all. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Cycles is available now. You can get it on Amazon or where else? You know, it's every it's everywhere books are sold. I encourage people to, if their um, local bookstore doesn't yes. carry it, they will order it for you. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. So that's my number one. It's get it through your local bookstore. Uh, if you get it through your local bookstore, you can still review on Amazon, which the algorithm loves. Helpful. Uh, it's, yep. There's two annoying things we have to do as authors, which is tell people to pre-order and tell them to review. So yeah, <laughs> those are things you can still do. But I mean, Amazon is always an option for books. People hate it or people use it. I, I you know, if you're getting valuable information from it, I, it's fine. Yeah. But, Thank you for mentioning that because I think the local bookstore is the way for sure. I couldn't wait though. I pre-ordered. <laughs> It helps so much. Yeah. You know, it's a bummer of our life that we have to kind of like totally live in a world with that. But if there's a way to have it be positive, then it really helps the book get into more hands too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the entire title is Cycles, the Science of Periods, Why They Matter and How to Nourish Each Phase with Recipes, Self-Care and Movement Practices. It's amazing. There's chock full of so much information that's applicable. And as we've been saying, this entire conversation it is super empowering to know this stuff. And I hope that everyone has garnered a bit of information about it and it's tickled your fancies that you open up this book and read it. And additionally, your other book is called... How to Grow a Baby. How to Grow a Baby. That's my phone ringing in the background. Forgot to put it on silent. How to Grow a Baby, which we didn't dive into a ton, but I have heard from many sources that it is absolutely amazing. I kind of describe it as my training manual for pregnancy and childbirth and beyond. Um, I've used it all all three of my pregnancies. Uh, I return to it consistently. I think that's how I've learned the value of that book to me is like the moment I got pregnant with my second and my third, I went back to that book. I reminded myself of movement and nourishment and ways to take care of myself that honestly like for me made the the biggest difference of anything ever in my life or how how my experience of birth was and 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 this thing that's kind of like menstrual cycles it's shaped by a story that can be pretty rough or or you can kind of relearn um to think about it differently yeah Uh, so it's for all people people especially who want to have like a unmedicated vaginal birth uh will find it the most interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, or you know i had my babies at home I would never recommend that for every single person. You should have your babies where you feel safe. But for people who are interested in, in that path, uh, it's a really it's it's a really helpful resource just from personal experience. And yeah, yeah it's being it's being used to you know te- empower people who are pregnant. 
Um, it's a teaching tool, a resource uh, for midwives and doulas. So I found that to be really cool that people are using it in this yeah. way that it's intended. It's like, this is to be used. These books are to be used yeah. like over and over again and in ways that help you actually care for yourself really practically. Yeah, totally. I mean, when I started reading this book and I was like, I should read the book before I interview Amy, I was like, I actually really want to take my time and digest this and go back to it and reference it and learn it through and through. It's also a lot of information in there. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it is. Slowly, yeah. But it's such a beautiful book. Thank you so much. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Go to your local bookstore, ask for them to order it, review it on Amazon, all the things. Yeah. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank I loved you. It. Yeah. I learned so much and I really appreciate your time.